last part. So after just a couple moments of quiet, as we bring our consciousness back here um, to what the Lord is going to say to us today, I'll ask us to stand and then we'll read this together. Stand, please. Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting, death? Death's sting is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of all this, my beloved brothers and sisters, you must stand firm, unshakable, excelling in the work of the Lord as always, because you know that your labor isn't going to be for nothing in the Lord. Thank you. You may have a seat. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the, the elders here at Grace Church. Um, help facilitate the teaching team. Really glad you're here this morning to join with us. <clears throat> Failure to launch syndrome is an increasingly common experience in our society. I think there's even been a movie made with that name. I, I don't know, I didn't see it, so I'm not recommending it. I don't know anything about it. I just know that was the title. Um, and it was interesting, as I was preparing, I was reading article after article on this, and there seems to be a number of reasons why young adults in our society often lack the fuel to make it out of the orbit of the family home and develop the agency to act fully as an adult. But the result, whatever marks the reasons, the results are all similar. They result in a person being stuck, unable to move beyond what they have known and walk in the full agency of adulthood. In some ways, though, this is really nothing new. Our text this week finds the disciples experiencing a bit of that failure to launch themselves. So let's dig in this week and see what we can find. God, we pray that through this word, through your word, through our presence here, that we would have a renewed hope in our calling, in our commissioning, that we would have a renewed hope in the way that you launch us into the world. Gently, but consistently, pushing us out to proclaim your kingdom to act as agents of reconciliation, ambassadors of the kingdom. God, right now, let your presence fill this church. We pray against anything that would seek to distort or diminish what you want to say. Anything that would twist what the Holy Spirit is working. And God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would renew that hope in each and every one of us. In Jesus' name. This week we look at the text. We're going to see that the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus inaugurates a new way that is not yet finished. It finishes some things. It's the end of some things, but it's the start of other things. 
And the other things that have been started are still going on. We're going to see that as his followers, we've been called, given a commission that should fill us with hope. And that the fuel to be fully launched into his mission is found in this hope. Now this text is full of eschatological and ecclesiological implications. It definitely confronts the sociocultural reality of the time and situation, while giving us tremendous insight into our current situation as well. Just another way of saying, hey, it's got a message for us, and it's important. So let's look at the text. We're with John 21, starting with verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now this, he, this is how he did so. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, who we looked in depth at last week with uh, John Farthing's message, which if you weren't here and you didn't have a chance to hear it, please go listen to that podcast. Um, he did a masterful job with that text. There was also Nathaniel, who was from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples of his were together. Simon Peter told them, I am going fishing. We will go with you, they replied, and they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When it was already very early in the morning, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not yet know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you don't have any fish, do you? Now, just right there, that's kind of a smack right there, right? When he knows that they don't have any fish, he's like, ah, you don't have any fish, do you? So he's kind of he's talking smack to them. Uh, they replied, no he, told them, no, he told them, throw your net out on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they threw the net and were not able to pull it in because of the large number of fish. So then the disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So Simon Peter, when he heard that it was the Lord, tucked in his outer garment for he had nothing on it underneath it, and plunged into the sea. Meanwhile, the other disciples came with the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, only about a hundred yards. When they got out on the beach, they saw a charcoal fire ready with fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have now caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and pulled the net ashore, it was, a full, it was full of large fish, 153, but although there were so many, the net was not torn. Come, have breakfast, Jesus said. But none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples when he was raised from the dead. We're going to see what this is and what is going on here, but first we have to deal with what to some scholars is a pretty glaring issue. And if we read this indeed, thinking about what John Farthing preached last week, we have to ask, why chapter 21 of John? In a way, it, it doesn't make sense that it's here the way that chapter 20 ends. Chapter 20 ends with the story of Thomas, and then it says, all these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Lord and have life in him. It's the perfect, the end, roll the credits. It's done. Chapter 21 appears to us kind of like, you know the, the Marvel superhero movies that are out now? 
And they've always got that little scene, if you wait around in the theater, after the credits roll, and the characters are all doing something, and they tell you about something, it's kind of a foreshadowing of what's coming next. That's, that's pretty much what like John 21 is. And I think we talked about it a lot, and we read the commentaries, <clears throat> and my personal opinion is this. John compiled his basic, what we know as the book of John, up through chapter 20, early on, after he had walked. And John, being the longest lived of all the disciples, had decades after to watch the growth of the church and see what was happening. And I think later on, after a few decades had passed and he was observing the things that were going on in the church, he's like, hmm, you know, I think we need to go back. I think there's a couple stories that, I, that didn't make the original version that I want to make sure we them now. Listen, that's just my guess with this. But it does help resolve a few issues that are pretty glaring, like why after, right after telling a story about Thomas, in just a few verses later, do you reintroduce Thomas? Why after having wrapped something up, do you kind of have this whole nother start with that? And it gives us an interesting perspective as we look at it that way, as to think, okay then, well if that, if that is possible then what's John trying to say? What is he trying to say here that he didn't maybe feel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that was totally said clearly in the first 20 chapters? Well, let's look at what that might be. Now, I want you to use your imagination with me for a minute here. Think about everything that John has told us up to this point. We've spent this whole past few months looking at John's story, starting with the, the wedding in Cana and going on. Now think about the disciples. For three years they've walked with the master. For three years they've followed him. Then they come and they've seen the passion of Jesus. They've seen the crucifixion. They've heard about the resurrection and they've encountered. This is a third time. So they've already twice encountered the risen Lord. As we talked about earlier too, John condenses Pentecost into that appearing. He condenses that giving of the Holy Spirit and commissioning them to go out into the world. That's already happened in John. And then he comes back this third time and he finds them doing what? Fishing. Now, if you had invested three years of your life into a group of disciples, investing in them the message of the kingdom, the means of going out, the Holy Spirit, the method by instructing them, walking with them, showing them how to do things. You had come back and you had given them the powering of the Holy Spirit, breathed on them to go into the world and preach the gospel to all nations, to forgive sins where, where people were bound up to, to proclaim freedom to the captives. And we're on your way ascending. You were, you were basically saying, okay, you guys got it, everything good, you know what's happening. And everybody's like, yes, sir, we got it. Yep, mm-hmm. We're good. And then two weeks later, you came back. 
And literally, they're back where they started. The first encounter Jesus had with these guys was when they were fishing. They, they haven't gone into all the world. They're not out preaching the gospel boldly. They're back fishing. What would your response be? I mean, honestly, what would your response be? Have you ever had that situation maybe with your kids? Hey, guys, you know what to do. Mom and Dad, we're going to be gone. You guys got this, right? They're like, yeah, we got it. And you go, <laughs> and you come back, and it's not quite like you thought it was going to be once you lost. Or maybe you've got employees, or maybe you've worked with people, right? Friends, that things were going to happen. <clears throat> you thought it was all good. And you come back, and, and nothing's been done with that. Well, let me tell you, Jesus does not give the response that I would give. Because I think I would have lost my cool pretty major at this point. I think just naturally, I would have been exasperated at best. Shaming. Judgmental. Probably would be the norm. For me, Jesus doesn't do any of that. You see, what was happening at this time is that after the resurrection, even though we, we often think of the, of the narrative as going more according to Luke's timeline, where as soon as this is over, Peter starts preaching and people start getting saved. And I'm sure there's elements of that in the story that were happening, but there was also a large section of the church that lived, <clears throat> they lived in the immediate anticipation of the return of Jesus. See, now this is something that we don't have culturally. And if we're going to understand what the message meant to the original hearers, we have to understand that, that the early church was formed by an apocalyptic imperative. Is that they expected Jesus to come back within their lifetime. They didn't expect him to tarry 100 years, 200 years, 300, 2,000 years. The writings of the time, the teaching of the time, were full of talk of get ready. People get ready. People get ready. The Lord is coming back. He's coming back soon. Much of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians was dealing with people who basically quit their jobs. Stop getting married. Just kind of dropped out of all society because we're like, why bother? Jesus is coming back. And this, this sense of in, the impending return of the Lord, which is something that we probably need to get more of in our day and age, they maybe had a, not too much of, but, but a wrong conception of with that. And so they were like, well, hey, why bother? Why go out and do this? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to do all that. We don't need to do that. Now, some of that could have been motivated by fear. We don't know that. It was an intense time of persecution. Some of it could have been informed, like we said, with this. The other thing that happened during this time was people literally 
And listen, we're all guilty of this. I'm not, please don't feel like I'm, I'm slamming people because I do this too. Is you know how you can have your emotions kind of guide you when you're in a situation? Like when you're with somebody and everything's going great and that person and there's momentum and there's, there's kind of a buzz around things and then the situation changes and maybe one person's gone, maybe the leader leaves, there's a change in leadership or something and things aren't quite like they were and you just don't know if it's going to go on. So you just kind of go back to what you know. You just kind of fall back into old habits, the old way of doing things. Kind of the new car smell wears off, right? And you stop taking extra good care of the car, fall back into the old habits, the way of doing things. And I think that's a little bit of what was happening here in the church. I think, I think there, was a group, there were groups of people that had quit doing stuff. They had huddled together. They were anxiously waiting for the return of the Lord, but they were neglecting other things. And then there were other people that said, hey, look, it ain't going to get done if I don't do it. Like the place has got to be swept. The bills have got to be paid. The people got to be fed. I'm just going to go back to doing things the way that I know how to do them. I'm just going to go back to doing things the way they've always been done. And John, watching this and observing this, thinks, you know, this really feels like what was going on with Peter and the disciples when Jesus had sent him up into Galilee. This, in a way, this really feels like that time after the resurrection, and I didn't put it in originally. They need to hear this. They need to know that story. They need to know that encounter that I had, that we had with Jesus at that time. <clears throat> and so he writes this in there. So what about us? What areas do we have a just, I can't do anything about it. Why bother? Jesus will fix it when he comes back. And we just take a hands off and let things fall apart. What areas do we look at and we go, well, Jesus isn't back yet. And there's stuff got to be done. I'm just going to get her done. I'm just going to bow up, go back to the old ways, do them the way they've always been done. We fall into those too, don't we? I mean, I know I do. I know there are things that, for whatever reason, I just, I'm like, well, that'll just have to be done when Jesus comes. And there are other things that I feel like it's the only way I know how to do them. So I might as well get to work. Why does it seem so difficult to reject both of these extremes? Why does it feel so difficult to find a way of faithfulness that rejects both of those? Well, I think human nature has a lot to do with it. I think we tend, all of us, one way or the other, tend to one, or one of those other extremes. I think the culture we live in Listen, the culture we live in does not allow for black and or for anything but black and white. It doesn't allow for mystery. It doesn't allow for long deferred gratification. It doesn't allow for the long the long view of things. 
We live in a culture that demands immediate answers, now answers. Fix it now. The kind of faithful response that Jesus is looking for here takes a long view. It takes a long imagination. Our society demands a zero-sum game. Winners, losers with that. Faithfulness in Jesus, that's walking out. We don't get to decide that. Rarely do we get to see who's going to come out ahead in ways or feel like even we're going to come out ahead in ways. So we hold back. We ignore, we anesthetize. We give up. The bottom line is the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus finishes some things, but also starts others that are still going on and we are still called to participate with. Now, in a discussion like this, it's easy to feel the intent of the text is to shout, hey, come on, let's get to work. You're lazy. And you feel that shame. You feel that, that goading with it. That is not what's going on here. When we look at the text and we see the gentleness that Jesus responds to this, this is not a shaming that he does here. As much as I think my natural response would be to do that, and that's why the text is so stunning to me, is because it's not what I would do. It's not, honestly, what I've experienced in my life from other people. This, this text is full of grace. It's full of a renewed invitation with that. And we have to be easy because it's, it's, it's our nature to mistake the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the calling of the Holy Spirit, the nudging of the Holy Spirit as a, as a get to work, as a try harder. And we've talked a lot at Grace Church about how we need to break out of the give up, try harder cycle with that. There's so many people that I know that are gluttons for responsibility in situations like this. Who just feel like, okay, well, let me do more. <clears throat> That's not what's being said here. This is a call that is different than that. It's a call that says our fruitfulness is to be found in listening to and obeying Jesus, not just in working harder with that. But at the same time, we have to understand life isn't easy, is it? We're called to invest in things that we may not see the payoff. We're called to give to people who may never repay in any way, shape, or form what we give and offer. We're called to commit ourselves to things that oftentimes don't don't pan out the way we think they're going to be. There are some things that we just will never understand our experience this side of heaven. But Jesus, if anything, promises that we can find meaning, joy, and a sense of God's presence wherever and whatever we are doing. And that's very different. That's very different than the performance orientation that our culture demands of us. It's very different. 
We have to learn to find our acceptance, our affirmation, our significance in who we are in Jesus. And that takes a lot of work. Taking that means taking the long view. Doing that means committing ourselves more to a practice in a community than any specific program. It means committing ourselves in a way that we are going to be open to what other people are doing as well as sharing in ways that demands vulnerability and openness with that. But this is a long obedience that it's done. And that is sustained by hope. Last week, John Farthing, when he was talking about Thomas, as we were in the teaching meeting, we, we, it kind of dawned on us. Last week, we talked a lot about faith. We talked a lot about faith with that. What does it mean? What is the role of, of doubt with faith? How do those interact? How does doubt actually help build our faith? And this week in this text, we see that there's this hope. This hope in the continual provision of Jesus. He asked them to bring their nets out, bring some fish. He's already got fish grilling. He's already provided for them. He's inviting them not out of anything that God lacks. God doesn't lack anything. He doesn't lack. But he invites us to show himself to us. He invites us so that we may learn more of him. He invites us so that we may become more like him in that. And this takes time. This takes being reminded. This takes practice. And if that's one thing that, you, that we're learning about ourselves as Grace Church is that we're committed to this practice. We don't have all the answers. We won't have it all figured out. We don't have any grand strategy or seven-point programs to answer. We have a confession. We have a practice. We have a community. And we're committed for the long haul with that. Now, there's one other thing about this text that we need to really understand. This whole text is a recapitulation or a retelling of the story in Luke 5. Jesus, this is where Jesus first encounters most of these disciples, is when he's coming out of the Jordan wilderness after he's been baptized by John, and they're fishing. And he says, have you caught anything? And they say, no. And he says, well, cast your nets over here. And they do. And they catch so much, that time it starts ripping their nets. And he says, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. That's what he's doing here, y'all. He just comes back around. Listen, you may have been called to follow Jesus when you were four years old. And you may have obeyed that. You may not have. It doesn't matter. He's still calling. Jesus is still calling everyone in, every one of us in here to be his followers. He's still providing for everyone in here by his grace. I need to hear that. I think all of us need to hear that. 
We need to base our hope not in our own understanding, our own interpretation, or even our own obedience to that. We need to place our hope in the fact that we're still being called. We're still being invited. We're still being beckoned to follow. Scholars have wondered what is the significance of the 153 large fish. Why would you... I mean, come on, that seems like a very bizarre statistic to add in there. 153 in the net? Why would you do that? Well, one of the ancient church fathers, Jerome, he offers this explanation. It's about as good as I've found with that. As he said, at that time in the known world, at least in that place, that 153 represented every type of fish in the sea. That 153 was meant that that's all of them. That's all the different types there. And that this represented to say, when you follow me now, whereas before it was, hey, follow me in Israel. Now it's like, you're going to follow me into the world. It was a foreshadowing of the global implications of following Jesus out into the world. That 153 meant that everybody's coming in. All nations, all tribes, all tongues, all people. All nationalities are going to be gathered into this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, has inaugurated, and is set and given us. That's a sustaining vision, y'all. That's something that we ought to never get tired of. That's something that, that, that gives us purchase in the kingdom to give our first, our best, our most in our faithful following of Jesus. And so as I invite the worship team back up and as we transition into this time of communion and prayer, I want to invite us, I want to invite all of us, Grace Church, not to a task, but to a voice, to a person. I want to invite all of us here to the call that Jesus continually gives, continually offers. Come. Follow Jesus. Come. Eat what he has provided. Take his provision. Come. Have your hope renewed and sustained. By the one who calls you, not by your own gifts, your own righteousness. Do we hear it? Thank you for being here this morning.